Descriptivism X by Bildachin Kushtaka, Pacific Northwest Coast University, from Volume 160, Number 4 of Speculative Grammarian, January 2011. Author's note, I was originally going to title this paper Radical Descriptivism, but that didn't seem radical enough. As everyone knows, though, the X games are the most radical thing in the known universe, so I've decided to make the X morpheme productive. Given the thesis of this paper, you can hardly blame me. Most practicing linguists, and even many who have gotten pretty good at it, will declare a philosophical allegiance to descriptivism while harboring a number of prescriptivist pet peeves. Even the managing editor of Speculative Grammarian has admitted, quote, a strangely compelling need to abandon my descriptivist idealism in favor of prescriptivist tyranny, unquote. The general trend I've noticed is that the closer an issue is to the identity politics of an individual, the more likely they are to harbor prescriptivist feelings about it. But I'll leave that to the sociolinguists and the linguistic anthropologists to sort out. Those crazy bastards over at the original English movement are total wingnuts, but they make a valid point. Quote, Descriptivism is at best a weak philosophy of usage, and at worst an invitation to grammatical chaos. Unquote. The OEM's response is to decry all change and revert to the earliest version of English that we can identify as such, the Old English of Beowulf. Of course, such a sweeping linguistic atavism is impractical at best. At the other end of the spectrum, the shadowy alliance of linguists, philologists, and polyglots, known as the Grammato-Chaoticon, encourages, quote, arbitrary and capricious change in both language and among languages worldwide, unquote. As a linguistic undertaking, the results have been remarkable and intriguing. As a social experiment, the ethics of what the Gamma Chi does and has done is murky and troublesome. What middle ground is there? Lexicographers often try to thread the needle, with platitudes such as, Quote, if you and your friends or co-workers use a word among yourselves and you all understand it, then it's a real word, unquote. But when it comes to anything even slightly deviant outside the lexicon, they often flinch. Sometimes it's modal stacking, sometimes singular they, sometimes improper verbal agreement, sometimes the use of he and I or me and him as objects and subjects, respectively. Several of these examples serve clear linguistic purposes. Modal stacking makes it easier to compactly pack complex tense, aspect, and mood qualifiers into an utterance. Singular they solves all sorts of evidential and sociolinguistic problems, but its half-millennial history provides insufficient bona fides. The fact that coordinated pronouns can override their case to indicate politeness would be fascinating in another language. And though case is generally useless and unnecessary in English, this usage is often seen as an ungrammatical abomination. Speaking of coordination, many speakers have trouble determining the correct verbal agreement for a coordinated subject. Parentheticals are even worse. Is it, quote, peas, unquote, or, quote, pea, unquote, between one dog, paren, sometimes two, close paren, and on my begonias? True descriptivists would have to agree that speakers who choose to make their verbs agree with the closest constituent, or assign case to who or whom on a similar basis, aren't making errors. They are devising and using a grammar that is easier to produce while being no more difficult to understand. Darwin, who commented on the parallels between the genetics of language and the genetics of living things, and Dawkins, who coined the term meme, would recognize the linguistic and mimetic adaptive fitness of such a choice. Such speakers do not need, and probably do not appreciate, the nuance necessary to construct or parse the full blossom of the most abstruse flowering of literary and academic English. A final example. All but the prissiest of English speakers have, at least in casual speech, fossilized the apostrophe s in theirs as a numberless verb that can take a singular plural complement, just as many other respectable languages have. For example, I, Ilya, and Gibdes, and just a few easily recognized languages commonly taught in English-speaking lands. 
Why not embrace all of these and thousands of other natural changes and let them flow as they will, rather than try to stem as prescriptivists would, or reverse, as the OEM seeks to do, the natural flux of language? We embrace such natural change, while rejecting the kind of change for the sake of change that the Gamma Chi would instigate. In anticipation of the accusations supporters of various flavors of standard English are sure to make, I'm not suggesting the abandonment of standard Englishes. Quite the contrary. Not only should standard English continue to be preserved, and even quite conservatively so, its place in this plan gives the world the hope of eventually achieving the Zamenhofian dream. As local, and via the internet and other communication networks worldwide, varieties of English drift further and further from any particular standard, globally mutual intelligible standard Englishes should retain their proper place as eminently practical, but not inherently superior, lingua francas. The consequences of this are both clear and clearly desirable. Embracing change will remove the stigma of so-called dialectal variation in English, promote linguistic creativity and diversity, and eventually lead to such significant divergence from standards that standard English will become a second language for everyone, preserving its practical value while removing the perceived advantage conferred to native English speakers. As for me and my shadow, me and him expects there's many advantages to this proposal, and anyone interested in language inequality might should consider it in order to broaden their linguistic horizons. Skull!